Welcome to this week's podcast, which is for topic six, where we're going to talk about a lawyer's duty to the administration of justice. And it's been said before, and probably warrants repetition, that the law is a profession, it's not just a business. At its heart is helping others with the stuff of life and the problems that become legal problems. Legal problems arise in the context of personal relationships, business, employment, tenancy, death, and all sorts of things. It is a profession that's founded on promoting the rule of law, and implicit in that idea is fairness, integrity, and the opportunity for independent representation. The integrity with which lawyers conduct themselves, both personally and in legal practice, reflects on the profession and the legal system itself. And yet, thanks to a few rogue players, lawyers' reputations in Australia as being shady rip-off merchants, remains alive and well in society. In 2021, a Roy Morgan poll explored the extent to which Australians aged 14 and over perceived the honesty and ethical standards of various occupations. When these candidates were asked how they rated lawyers, only one quarter, about 26% of Australians that were polled said that the legal profession had a high or very high standard of honesty and ethical standards. Now, this result marks a substantial drop in societal perceptions for lawyers. In 2017, the last time that Roy Morgan conducted this research, 35% of Australians rated lawyers' ethics and honesty as high. It's the lowest ratings that lawyers have ever had from the Australian public since 1998. So the question is then, well, what can account for this perception in the public's mind? Well, that's a complex question. Factors such as how highly regulated and confusing legal cost charging is one issue. Uh, people believe that lawyers are always overcharging, but often that's not the case. Media coverage, certainly, of the worst behaviour in the profession doesn't help the perception in the public's mind either. If we think about Lawyer X, Nicola Gobbo, and her gross miscarriages of justice with representing her clients, or we think about Justice Dyson Hayden, former High Court judge, and the sexual harassment allegations made there. How about Leo Bryant, who ripped off deceased clients' trust accounts to the tune of $6 million instead of giving that money to charity, as was directed in the client's will? None of this assists the profession, that's for sure, but it's important to note that these extreme examples are rare exceptions to the majority of legal practitioners in Australia. Most lawyers do behave ethically and frequently offer services to their community and to their clients, very often without charging and for the public good. So why the bad rap? Well, how do you feel about entering a profession that has a declining public perception of honesty and integrity? In this podcast, we're going to consider the duties of a lawyer to the administration of justice, and we're going to do that through a number of paradigms. It's a bit of a hodgepodge, I suppose, topic, but nonetheless, it's important. We're going to look at the duty of independence, the duty of honesty, how we deal with witnesses, and then also uh, rules around surety for bail. Let's start with integrity. A lawyer's role is as guardian of the law. Uh, this is his or her first and highest loyalty. We call that fidelity to the law. A lawyer is required to uphold the law both professionally and personally. 
there are plenty of disciplinary judgments that show that your personal life and your professional life are not separate. Both are subject to scrutiny and both are subject to the requirement that you behave as a fit and proper person in which to practice law. You must behave in a way that does not denigrate the law. If you'd like examples, have a look at New South Wales Bar Association and Sahad of 2005, or Bar Association of Queensland and Lamb, also Bar Association of New South Wales and Cummings. Rule 5 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules makes the link between personal and private very clear. A lawyer's conduct, both inside and outside of practice, must be law-abiding, honest and with integrity so as not to diminish the rule of law. Personal integrity, well, what is that? It's being honest and a fit and proper person. That is why upholding the law personally and your honesty in all matters is really critical. This is something that our admitting bodies look into very carefully and they'll look at acts of dishonesty. Such things separate, separate to legal practice, such as cheating in taxation or academic integrity before you're admitted to practice. Well, why do these things matter? I mean, what does it matter what you do in your personal life if you're a lawyer? Well, the reason is that in legal practice, you will be required to handle other people's money and trust. You will need to make submissions about people's future to the court. You will need to swear affidavits, statutory declarations and documentations that attest to truth. There are numerous opportunities to exploit and abuse what is a position of trust and power. And that is why your integrity and your honesty matters. It is for this reason that the law considers a lawyer's relationship to clients as not just contractual, but often fiduciary, one implying loyalty and trust obligations. Now, surprisingly, one of the most common disciplinary areas to come before the Office of the Legal Services Commissioner is abuse of trust funds or overcharging of client legal costs. As your text notes, this is most likely because this area is the most common area that a breach will arise because often there are mandatory requirements to report trust account aberrations, particularly if they're um, caused by another person within the practice you're practising. We'll consider trust account rules and trust funds in later modules, but as a working definition, trust funds are those monies held on trust for the benefit of another. They are not your money, they are held for another. There are very strict rules and regulations and procedural requirements for the managing and accounting of trust money. Chapter 4, Part 4.2 of the Uniform Law details these requirements and also establishes the Fidelity Fund, which is a sum that's maintained by the Law Society to allow clients to claim against it if they're defrauded or embezzled by lawyers. The Fidelity Fund is maintained through mandatory contributions from lawyers annually and it makes sense that we have something like this because the taking of trust money is seen as such an egregious harm to a client and such a breach of that lawyer's fundamental duty of integrity and honesty. Before you're admitted to practice, you're going to be required to complete a course in practical legal training which instructs you in the operation and rules of trust accounting. And it's important to note that this area and the handling of clients' money is the one most often complaints are made about and where allegations in relation to lack of integrity or honesty arise. So even where the client loses money or does not lose money, these matters are often dealt with as disciplinary proceedings and have the risk of being struck from the role. 
So it's very important that integrity and honesty in handling money is adhered to. Let's look at the paradigm of independence and what that exactly means. The duty to remain independent as a lawyer is vital. Part of independence is remaining objective, truthful, and being able to provide clear and unbiased advice and representation. See Kooky Garments and Charlton, New, South, uh, New Zealand Law Report, Judgment of 1994. Rule 4.1.4 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules requires as a fundamental ethical duty that all solicitors, and I quote, avoid any compromise to their integrity and professional independence. So there's two components in this rule, avoiding behaviour that compromises integrity and secondly, remaining professionally independent. Now, independence arises in a number of contexts and ways, and these include, number one, in how we present cases to the court, number two, in how witnesses are handled and avoiding becoming a witness ourselves, number three, how clients are advised and kept informed, and number four, avoiding conflicts of interest between our own interests and that of the client. Independence, I guess, as a working definition, is that conscious practice of law that recognises and maintains professional objectivity and autonomy to ensure that your highest duty remains to the courts and the administration of the law. How this works out in practice is that you have to constantly manage situations to ensure that your own interests do not conflict with that of the clients or conflict with your duty of fidelity to the law. Let's consider four paradigms where independence is illustrated. Number one, independence in the courtroom. This is involving things such as uh, what is pleaded in court documents, um, how matters are put forward before the court, noting that lawyers are not meant to be hired guns. See Rule 17.1. We're not the mere mouthpiece of the client. We don't just regurgitate the allegations or the evidence the client may be saying. We're required to objectively uh, weigh up that evidence and to exercise forensic judgment to ensure a balanced and true presentation of the facts and law to the court. Now, sometimes this might be against what the client actually wants you to do, but it is very clear that that is your first and paramount duty and it's part of being independent. Lawyers are to press rational considerations as the evidence fairly gives rise to. See Tuckia and uh, the Queen of 1934. The balance, as Del Pont rightly notes, is acting for the client's best interests zealously, but not wasting the court's time or using sharp practice or being economic with the truth. This means you will be discerning and discriminating, not necessarily bringing everything before the court that the client wants you to, and not putting things in a way that might be misleading or less than completely candid. Note Rule 17.2 that you are required to exercise what's called forensic judgment in the presentation of a case. And it will not be considered a breach of your duty to the client if you do exercise that judgment, <clears throat> determining not to call evidence or not to press something that is inappropriate. Now, this entails also not wasting the court's time and resources or submitting everything that the client wants us to. 
It also means providing the court with relevant authorities and they may not assist the client. The authority may be against the client's interests, but that is part of the duty to the court and it is part of the duty of being independent as a legal practitioner. The second paradigm of independence is how we handle witnesses. And I guess this is a corollary of the duty to the court, but it's worth mentioning here also with independence. Witnesses are not permitted um, under any circumstances in the solicitor's conduct rules to be coached or cajoled into giving certain versions of events or evidence. Their evidence has to be candidly placed before the court for the court to make a determination based on the facts. In this regard, have a look at Rule 24 and consider the case of Day and Parish of Blue, which was a terrible situation where witnesses were coached into the evidence they should have been given. Now, equally, lawyers must also avoid at all costs becoming a witness in their own client's case because this is a huge compromise of independence. A lawyer's role is to present the case and to test the evidence, whereas a witness's role in this is to actually give evidence and to explain facts. The lawyer can't do both. We considered this in the example of the barrister in a tutorial previously, noting that the bar rules specifically prohibit counsel continuing to act when they might be called as a witness in the proceedings. So too with solicitors, they cannot give evidence in their clients' own matters unless it's in very limited circumstances. Rule 27 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law requires that in a situation where the lawyer is or may be a witness in their client's case, they're required to stop acting for the client so long as the administration of justice is not prejudiced. Acting as both advocate and witness compromises your professional independence and also arguably compromises your duty to the court. As noted in Pitorin and Maynard, being a witness may tempt a lawyer to tailor their evidence to assist the client and may then cause them to lose objectivity, independence and the adherence to the rules of evidence and integrity. The time to not act for your client if you're a potential witness is at the beginning of the retainer or as soon as you realise you may be a potential witness. You should not accept instructions or continue acting if there is a personal or business relationship with the client or any risk that you're going to be required to be a witness in that client's matter or a related matter. Thus, solicitors that find themselves in positions where they've acted negligently or criminally must immediately cease acting and must pass instructions on to another legal practitioner. The court also has the power in its inherent powers to disqualify lawyers from acting for clients where they potentially could be called as witnesses. And this is part of the court's supervisory capacity to ensure that independence of practitioners is maintained. In Mitchell and Burrell of 2008, it was stated that this power is permitted because the court is concerned with the integrity of the trial process and the administration of justice. So barristers and solicitors must cease acting for the client if they're called to give evidence in the client's case. The next paradigm that we can consider independence in is avoiding conflicts of interest. And this is a little bit more subtle than things like witnesses, court, and uh, being called as a witness in the client's case. Legal practitioners must not have personal interests or exposures in acting for their clients. And the reason for this is that it compromises your independence and can place your interests at odds with that of the client's interests. And conflict is often one of the problems uh, for independence. 
Now, sometimes these problems aren't immediately apparent when you first receive the instructions and your interests and the client's interests might be one of the same. But if things do develop and can go pear-shaped, sometimes a solicitor or barrister may find their interests adverse to that of the clients. You have a conflict and you have a compromise of independence. Let's take an example. So say you're a personal injury lawyer who takes on a client with a case that is not great in terms of its prospects of success. There's a real risk this client's going to lose their case. You're taking the case on spec and you're carrying a lot of credit for the client in terms of costs and disbursements. That's because you've done it on the usual basis of no win, no pay. An offer of settlement comes in the door, hallelujah, but the offer is well below what the case is actually worth. Accepting that offer means you get paid, but it also means the client isn't necessarily getting what their case is worth. Do you see the potential conflict here and the problem for independence? Here it's vital to ensure that your own interests don't conflict with that of the clients and you maintain proper professional independence so that you can fully advise this client of their position, the risks in their position and the potential possible outcomes. So this situation or this problem can be dealt with by full and frank advice but it might also be well dealt with by obtaining independent advice on the offer of settlement so that the client's fully informed and can make a a informed decision and you're not put in a position where your independence is compromised. So, for example, you might brief a barrister to give a full and frank opinion on whether the offer of settlement should be accepted. Another way independence can be compromised is through loaning money to clients or having business interests the subject matter of the client's legal advice that you are giving them. Now, none of this is illegal and it's not prevented by the solicitor's conduct rules, which only prevent you from loaning money from clients, not loaning money to clients. But it requires careful thought and consideration before you accept instructions to act in such circumstances. Indeed, this principle undergirds the bar rules also, with the stated objective at Rule 3D being a barrister must provide services of the highest standard, unaffected by personal interest. Avoiding personal relationships with clients is prudent practice in safeguarding against conflicts and maintaining independence. It should also be noted that a lawyer's relationship with their opponent is another area where independence can be compromised. Remember you have a duty of fidelity to the client and loyalty to the client and if you have a business or personal relationship with your opponent it may be that your fidelity to the client could be compromised. Again, independence and professionalism is vital. In such cases, it's prudent to disclose to the client and where possible, cease acting so that any potential conflict can be avoided and that independence can be maintained. A final area to mention where independence can be compromised and is vital is in not providing surety for bail, Rule 17.4 of the Conduct Rules. This requires that solicitors not become surety for bail. Now, there's no equivalent provision in the bar rules, and that's most likely because the bar is usually briefed by solicitors and bail handled by solicitors. But the reason for this rule is pretty obvious. Guaranteeing a client's appearance at court in order to meet criminal charges may put the practitioner in a conflict between their duty owed to the client and their duty owed to the court, and it may really compromise their independence in this regard. So for that reason, the rules prohibit being surety for clients' bail. 
Let's now focus on the duty of honesty. As the corollary of the duty to the administration of justice is that duty of honesty. We covered honesty also in the context of the duty to the court, where it's referred as the duty of utmost candour. But honesty is so tied up with this concept of a fit and proper person. It also has a paradigm in the duty to the client and the duty to the public. Honesty and duty to the public arises in three spheres. The duty to deal with clients honestly, which is a corollary of the duty of loyalty, a duty to legal practitioners and a duty of candour to other practitioners, and then a duty to be honest to third parties, especially those who aren't legally represented, and we're going to be covering that in another topic. The manner in which we handle clients in terms of legal costs, charging and communication can be an occasion to consider the duty of honesty. Being candid with the client about the progress of their matter and to fully and frankly disclose when things go wrong, costs change, adverse orders are made against them, is well illustrated in a raft of disciplinary cases where practitioners have chosen to gild the lily or simply not tell the client about what is happening in their matter. Cases such as Legal Practitioners Conduct Board and Boylan, which is uh, detailed at page 190 of your text, illustrates this. The paradigm we most see this honesty duty in is overcharging. And let's face it, overcharging is a form of dishonesty. Padding timesheets and overcharging a client is unsatisfactory professional conduct under Section 298D of the Legal Profession Uniform Law. And it can see you disciplined or struck off the roll. See Scroop and the Legal Services Commissioner. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I'll never overcharge a client, but wait till you get into private practice if that's where you end up and you'll realise that billable hours, work in progress and target billing becomes part and parcel of performance measures in a private enterprise and the temptation to add a few minutes or hours here and there to client matters is quite significant. At all times, you have to ask yourself, is this honest? Is this acting with integrity? Am I doing the right thing by the client? because these are the things that really matter. Representations and conduct towards other practitioners is also something that has to be characterised with honesty and integrity. And we're going to consider this further in topic seven when we look at duties to others. But a good case to illustrate this duty of honesty and integrity is the Legal Services Commissioner in Mullins and also the case of Chamberlain. Now Mullins is located at 1140 of your text. Uh, now, as I said, we've previously discussed the case of Chamberlain and this idea of a duty uh, to correct an opponent's error. In Mullins, there was clear dishonesty in omission by not being completely candid and forthright with the opposition in a case when it really mattered. In Chamberlain, it's worth men mentioning that um, although that case is also mentioned in your text, um, this was an important case because it showed really sharp practice and dishonesty. Now, Chamberlain, a solicitor, was in proceedings with the Australian Tax Office in relation to unpaid taxes and took advantage of an error that had been clearly made by the solicitor representing the Australian Tax Office when they tried to settle the matter due to the misplacement of a decimal point in settlement figures and that led to him being... Um, incorrectly having judgment entered to the sum of $220,000. Now, Chamberlain capitalised on the error and consented to judgment in the incorrect amount, knowing full well that this error had been made by his opponent. 
Now, the Law Society succeeded in disciplinary proceedings in having Chamberlain struck off because of this, because they said that agreeing to this settlement and looking for an estoppel in that case was dishonest and manifestly wrong practice by a solicitor, and that it suggested that that character was not one that was fit and proper or acting with independence or integrity. And I would respectfully suggest that in that instance, the problem was he was acting for himself and had a clear lack of independence in terms of what was appropriate in candour to the opposition and what was in his own best interest in terms of his debt in a judgment. Candour matters. Often it will be in seemingly small matters that we're tempted to stretch the truth, such as why a document hasn't been done on time or court orders not, court orders not complied with. Delay in preparing a matter, losing documents, incorrectly sending attachments. It's better just to fess up and take responsibility for errors, noting that you are only human. It's when we stretch the truth and try and make up excuses that simply aren't true that we get ourselves in all sorts of trouble and we compromise our duty of candour and we compromise our independence. The duty owed to third parties we will cover in subsequent topics, so I won't get into that area now, but this is another area where independence is very important. One area that does warrant discussion is practice administration and advertising because this is an area where independence can be really compromised, as can the duty of candour. How lawyers conduct their legal practices as business can impact on the integrity of the lawyer and the integrity of the profession. You have to do it with honesty. In no small part, the rise of advertising and aggressive ambulance chasing practices in the late 1980s and 1990s contributed to the perception of an insurance crisis in Australia. And it was a perception that was largely unfounded, but the belief was that because of advertising by lawyers particularly, Australians were becoming increasingly litigious. Now, a lot of this was with the onset of uh, the popularisation of no-win-no-pay schemes. Perception does matter because it's what led to the dreadful regime of the Civil Liability Act that we now have in most jurisdictions that you'll have learned about in tort law. And it also resulted back in that time uh, with many states introducing legislation that prohibited or strictly curtailed and regulated advertising by lawyers. However, after much lobbying of the government and backlash, that legislation was not enacted or was repealed in certain areas. And now there is no legislation uh, prohibiting um, advertising of personal injury in New South Wales, the ACT, South Australia and the Northern Territory. However, the consumer law does actually moderate how solicitors do advertise. Um, and the federal government has also issued guidelines for advertising in legal services. Now, as your text notes, lawyers are quite divided over the issue of advertising and there are arguments both for and against uh, whether we should be permitted to advertise. Whether you agree or not, one thing is certain is that if a lawyer decides to advertise their services, it really matters how they advertise them and what message and impression they're giving to the wider public because whether we like it or not, that does reflect on the wider legal profession. So, for example, a lawyer cannot denigrate or disparage their opposition in advertisements. Solicitor's Conduct Rule 36.1.3 says that advertising can't be offensive and Rule 4.1.2 states that a practitioner must always act with honesty and courtesy. Misleading and deceptive advertising includes not fully disclosing fees, 
Uh, for example, advertising no win, no pay, but not actually explaining that there will be disbursements that are required to be paid and party party costs. Not only does this breach the solicitor's conduct rules, but also potentially breaches Section 18 of the Australian Competition and Consumer Law, which provides that a person must not, in trade and commerce, engage in conduct that is misleading or deceptive or likely to mislead and deceive. Full disclosure is required, and making sure that we act in a way that is with complete honesty and transparency is best for both ourselves and the profession. Now, the legislation in consumer law provides penalties of damages and injunctions that solicitors may be responsible for if they get advertising wrong. And in addition, misleading advertising may warrant disciplinary action by the Legal Services Commissioner. So it's really important how we advertise. Furthermore, you cannot, under the rules, particularly Rule 36.2, hold yourself out as a specialist or an accredited specialist when you do not have this expertise, and that means normally going through your relevant law society specialist accreditation. Another aspect is that lawyers can't slander other people, and the case of Slater and Gordon and Nixon illustrates this point. Again, an advertising case that gives you a really good idea about honesty and integrity. Now, in this case, Slater and Gordon had used Dr. Nixon's image on the front of a glossy advertising brochure to advertise medical negligence case specialty. The problem was that poor Dr. Nixon wasn't negligent and certainly wasn't a client of Slater and Gordon's. They had just used his image as a picture and there was an imputation that was being made that he was negligent as a consequence of his picture being associated with medical negligence services. He sued Slater and Gordon for defamation and was successful. Solicitors must also not take improper advantage of referrals or set up systems of improper reward where they pay incentives for referrals unless there is full and frank disclosure to the client and the client's uh, consent, Rule 12.4.3. Now, referral fees are surprisingly common in many fields where there's relationships between the medical profession or particular expert fields that are cultivated to create a referral scheme between solicitor and other professional. Um, the lawyer gets the case, the doctor gets a patient, the doctor gets paid to write a report. Now, these schemes are regulated by Rule 12.4.3, which requires clear disclosure of this referral practice to the client and the client's informed consent that they can actually choose somebody else to provide the services um, and have been completely informed of this relationship. One further aspect of the duty of administration to the public um, is public comment and the lawyer's role in terms of confidentiality and also dealing with media. Increasing use of social media and media poses a number of ethical uh, dilemmas for lawyers. So too does public comment during trial in any way that may prejudice or inflame or misinform the public. Frequently, we need to consider whether using media or social media could be a breach of confidentiality or could be conduct that is unprofessional or disparaging to the integrity of the profession. In Western Australia, the bar rules now provide that counsel is not permitted to make comment to the media without approval from the association's president. The Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules at Rule 28 provide that a solicitor must not publish or take steps towards publication of any material concerning current proceedings which may prejudice a fair trial or the administration of justice. Similar provisions exist in the bar rules Rule 76 and 78. 
Often you'll see this outside of courts where the media thrust microphones into the faces of counsel or solicitors asking for comment and the response is often no comment. There are good reasons for this and the uh, requirement not to publicly comment on matters before the court is very important. What about repugnant clients and representation? A lawyer's professional responsibility also requires them to consider access to justice and the benefit of the public at large. Now, we're going to consider this theme in much greater detail in Topic 10. And there will be times when clients come to you who do need legal representation and who you're capable of representing. But let's face it, their values or their reputation are really repugnant to you and what you may um, want to do in terms of representing them. For example, a client whose cultural beliefs uh, might be such that they permit um, female circumcision and you might find that personally challenging, or a client who's accused of terrorism, or a client whose religious views don't agree with your own, can all arise difficult ethical situations and it may be difficult for you to represent them independently and with utmost integrity. Remember, a lawyer has a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the client. So if you receive instructions in these matters and you think you might be compromised or not wholly loyal to the client, then the only answer is to simply not receive the instructions and not to accept the retainer. You must act in the client's best interests once you accept that retainer. Solicitors, unlike barristers, do not have to accept instructions. And if you don't think you can act fairly or independently for a client and act in their best interests, then you must refuse to accept the retainer. Thankfully, this differs to the bar rules with the cab rank rule. Rule 17 of the bar rules requires that barristers must accept briefs if they have expertise and availability in an area, provided that the fee is sufficient. So barristers don't have the same level of refusal that solicitors do. And for that reason, we need to be very cognizant of the types of matters as solicitors we do accept. Let's just have a brief chat about conduct outside of practice and how this can also affect independence and integrity. A lawyer's behaviour outside of legal practice can also impact on their legal practice and may actually warrant disciplinary proceedings, having them struck off or disbarred. Now, why is this so? Well, because the law is a profession that requires those who practice it to uphold the rule of law and be fit and proper persons, their personal and public life both matter. Thus, whilst your professional life might be completely perfect, if your conduct outside of the law in your personal life shows that you're not a fit and proper person, this will affect your ability to practice and may come bring you under review for personal conduct. Now, the case law in this area is mixed. There are cases where practitioners have been penalised in circumstances that have seemingly no or little connection with their legal practice. And there are cases where practitioners have not been punished, where serious convictions have been recorded. How do we reconcile these cases and understand them? Well, what is clear is that the courts will consider the particular circumstances of each and every case when determining disciplinary proceedings and will look at the heart of whether the conduct renders the practitioner as unfit or improper in the practice of law. What can be said, generally speaking, is that dishonesty, lack of disclosure and taking advantage of others nearly always results in a finding of not fit and proper and disciplinary proceedings on the basis that this person is a threat to the public and will not be able to practice independently. Consider the case of Legal Services Commissioner and PFM Legal Practice. 
Now, here the solicitor was found to have provided forged academic transcripts of his law qualifications in applications for employment. Now, whilst this was not misconduct whilst acting in practice, the court found that the complete lack of honesty and integrity displayed by this solicitor was sufficiently connected with the practice of law that it warranted them being struck off because they were no longer a fit and proper person to practice law. Interestingly, that solicitor argued that he had been suffering a major depressive illness at the time of the forgery, and the court found that the illness, whilst clouding judgment, was not causative of dishonesty. What about other forms of conduct? Well, criminal convictions are another area that may disqualify a practitioner from legal practice, but not necessarily always. If a court is satisfied that a conviction impacts on the integrity or ability of the practitioner to practice and uphold the law, then they are likely to strike off the practitioner. And the reason for that is protection of the public, not punishment of the practitioner. An example is Law Society of South Australia and Rhoda, where a practitioner was struck off for indecent assault of a minor, which had no connection with legal practice. In any event, it was enough for the uh, disciplinary tribunal to find that he was not a fit and proper person to practice law. Equally, there are cases and examples where solicitors have been convicted of drug offences for importation of ecstasy tablets or drug possession and use, where they have not been found um, to be unfit or improper and have been allowed to continue practising law, often in reduced or supervisory capacity. There are rafts of cases where practitioners have been dishonest in their tax affairs and with failure to file tax returns um, where they have been struck off. And again, it's that dishonest conduct and disregard for the law, namely the tax law, that is at the heart of that finding. Um, For example, the Bar Association and Hayman uh, or the Bar Association and Cummins. There's also the very well-known case, if uh, you may remember from some years ago, of Justice Einfeld, which is another great example of why uh, your personal life, integrity and honesty matters and can totally affect your professional life. Now, here a former federal court judge was actually struck off the role of practitioners by the Bar Association when it was found that he had falsified evidence concerning speeding tickets. And you can read about this case at paragraph 1150 of your text. Whilst speeding tickets don't seem like a big deal, it's the honesty and integrity that really matters. And that really is the guiding principle that unites all of the cases in this area. So I hope this has been a helpful podcast to you in thinking about how honesty, integrity and independence are vital in the administration of justice and that relationship to a fit and proper person and the practice of law. Thank you for listening.